Welcome, everyone. Good to see your smiling faces. Or even if they're not smiling, it's good to see them, one way or another. This is the fourth Sabbath in the Pentecost count, but we're, <clears throat> we're getting closer, over halfway there. Certainly looking forward to that time and counting in anticipation for it. As I think you all know, my son, uh, Matt, had his wife in a terrible car accident about four years ago, and she's been paraplegic ever since. Uh, she can, gotten where she can kind of say a few words, uh, you listen carefully, you can, can understand them, and moves her eyes, that's the way she commu- communicates, is by reading uh, a monitor, and somehow that thing translates her eye movement into words and puts them on a screen. I don't know exactly how that happens, but it does. Uh, so it's very difficult for her to communicate, and she has to be fed. She can swallow, finally, if fed, uh, and that's slow and difficult. So it's been a hard time, and I also had, or have, my daughter, uh, Kim, her husband had a stroke, oh my, I don't remember now how many years. He's, I bet it's going on 10 years. Uh, he was only in his 40s, mid-40s, I guess, and uh, had a stroke, and he's been paraplegic ever since. He can move only his eyes, nothing else, uh, no swallowing, no nothing, just move his eyes. Uh, and so I have two of my kids out of... The five uh, have a paraplegic mate. Uh, it's a very, very difficult situation for the families and so on. But at any rate, uh, Matt is going to build a house that's more uh, amenable to her situation where she'll have room for her uh, therapy equipment and all kinds of things and wider doors and uh, so she can be pushed around the house better. And uh, I've been wanting to help them in any way I could, so uh, <laughs> I volunteered to go help build a house uh, with what I've got left, that is, with bad knees and old and everything else, but I still know how, if I can just get the muscles to perform. But at any rate, uh, Ivan's going over to work for him as well. Uh, we're planning on leaving uh, sometime this week, maybe Wednesday, and uh, go over and stay until before Pentecost, and then come back and be here for Pentecost weekend. It's over 600 miles, so it's it's a little far to try to come home every weekend because you'd spend you leave early Friday, get here before sunset, and uh, then drive all day Sunday to get back. So that leave you four days to work a week, so I think it's better just to stay there, and we do have good internet, good cell phone service, it's 8,500 feet up on a mountain with nobody around anywhere, basically, but us, a few vacation homes scattered through the timber on 40 and 50 acre pieces, but people aren't there, so it's, it's a nice setting, view of Pike Peak and everything from the top of the mountain where everything is. 
and we went over to take a tra travel trailer and a bunch of stuff uh, this week to get it set up. And uh, in the meadow down below the house, uh, there were over a hundred elk there grazing toward late afternoon, and saw dozens of deer and and uh, turkeys running all over the place. So it's it's a nice setting up there. And, uh, I look forward to being in the mountains, but mainly it's about getting the house done. So uh, we'll be gone until, or almost up to, before Pentecost. Uh, at least that's the plan, unless there's some reason to come back. I can be here in a long day. If you really stay on it, uh, it's about a 12-hour trip, 13 if you lollygag a bit. So uh, I can get back here in a day's time if there's any real need. But we have Nelson here to anoint and to help with whatever he needs to help with. And then I can be back if I need to be back. But I want to do what I can to help him and Amanda get things at least set up physically where it's easier on them. Matt's trying to run his business in Colorado Springs, which is 50 miles away. Computer business, so he, he has... He has the servers and the computers of these businesses are all hooked through them. So he can do a lot of it from up on the mountain. But he has to go to Colorado Springs a time or two a week to take care of specific things he can't fix over the Internet. But he's going to help, and, uh, and yet his wife needs pretty much 24-hour attention. So they have uh, people hired to feed her, help her, get her shower, and various things. But he has to do a certain amount of it himself. And uh, uh, then his daughter just had a baby, and then there's taking care of her that falls a little bit on him and them. So it's, it's and then it's just a hard situation. So uh, I want to do what I can anyway, and... Uh, Appreciate Ivan coming up. He's going to work and uh, and help as well. So that's kind of lined out to get done this summer. But I'll I'll stay in close touch here, and you can reach me any of you by cell phone most any time. It's really good service up there. I'm amazed. I have much better service there than here uh, by far. And internet is fast, even on my phone. Where here it sits there and goes. A while up there, it's just boom. So that's a big help. And so we're entirely reachable, put it that way. Uh, I, I, I hate to leave. I like to be here every Sabbath. But from up there, it'll be easy to phone sermons in. Uh, so at least we can connect that way on Sabbath. And uh wanted to kind of let you know the program so you know why I'm running off uh, doing this thing and hopefully to get done as soon as possible and be back here pretty much full time. So anyway, uh, I think it is so very important that we have learned the uh, symbolism of the last day of unleavened bread being again uh, deliverance and restoration. And we've been going over some things to do with that ever since, uh, starting on that day, about the great deliverance that occurred at the Red Sea and how God had proposed at that moment to restore them 
uh, in every way to restore them to the promised land, and how they murmured and complained and wound up getting penalized for 40 years uh, because of attitudes. And the restoration was scheduled to start right then. He did restore them as a nation. When they came across the Red Sea, they were a, uh, their own nation again, uh, where they had not been in slavery. So that part was restored, but the promised land and all those physical blessings were not yet given, and then had to wait. And, but even then, God was so good to them, uh, they had had land and been able to grow crops and have their animals and everything in Mithraim, but out there, they were very limited in the wilderness, but God did not give up on them. That is an important thing for us to grasp, is that they didn't have right attitudes, they got penalized, got punished, and yet he gave them manna, the food of angels it's called, uh, which had all the nutrients they needed. He gave them quail for meat, all they could possibly eat. So even as they wandered, they were taken care of. And the same is true today, that even as God scattered the church because of our lack spiritually, uh, as enumerated there in Revelation 3, He's still taking care of us. He's still been there for those who will seek Him. And that's what this is all about anyway, is to seek Him. So He's looking for those who will. And for those who don't, uh, problems come in ways that sometimes are unfathomable in, in many respects is what's happened in the church here, there, and everywhere. But I want to continue this thought. We, we went to Joshua last week and through the story of him backing up the Jordan River at spring, spring flood time and having them go across on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and, of course, I'm sure the water to the left uh, just drained on off, but upstream it piled itself up, and very quickly, I'm sure, to a very wide and maybe very high uh, height, and they got across, and everything was fine, and then they set up stones and an altar of, of remembrance, because something like that needs to be remembered, that God delivered at that point and it was at the days of unleavened bread. He delivered them from the wilderness into the promised land again. And he gave them uh, restoration of everything that you could possibly need. Right after that, and started uh, fighting their battles for them from that time forth. That's... That almost boggles my mind to try to think and imagine how that all occurred. I know it did because it was recorded that that's what God did. But we've never in our lifetime seen anything like that. Like the Red Sea parting. Like the Jordan backing up. We are going to. And that's the point. There is a time of restoration and deliverance ahead. I said those backward deliverance first and then resurrection are together, really. Uh, 
Uh, that's the way it was the Red Sea. They walked across and were restored immediately right there. So it's, it's hand in hand. But it's coming, and amazingly, the Scriptures talk about His great and wonderful work here at the end in the prophecies and how it's going to be greater than what has occurred in the past. And when you think of the Red Sea and the Jordan River, and think of things that will be even greater, uh, wow. And we have that to look forward to very shortly, because we are at the end time. Now let's look at Joshua then, because there are some parallels here uh, for us, and parallels with the early New Testament church for that time, that are going to occur again here at the end. God always does things in patterns, and the things that he's written, he said, and we've been over that many times, that they were written for the understanding, for the benefit of those who live at the end time. Well, if it was for our benefit that they were written, then what benefit are we going to have? A fair question. And the benefits are going to be as great as and greater than what occurred in Moses or Joshua's time or Peter, James, and John's time. In fact, they're written in the book of Revelation, and this time the church is going up against the whole world, basically through two men and those who back them and who are the example of the way we should be living. So it's a very small end-time work, 10% of what was the church, and then two speaking for them. And go up against the whole world with the same kind of plagues, even mention some of the ones that were in Egypt. But this is not just on Mitzrayim or Egypt, this is on the whole world. So it's a much bigger thing by far. It stretches your imagination when you really think about it, and how they can do nothing against God's people. With that thought in mind, let's go to Joshua 6. They've gotten in, they were past the Jordan now, and ready to start taking the land. Now Jericho was straightly shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out and none came in. We read about Rahab and how she delivered the two spies last week, and that she said that all the people in the land were deathly afraid of the Israelites at this point because they had heard the stories of the Red Sea. They had heard of how God had delivered them those years, and I'm sure they heard that the Jordan River had just been backed up as well. Jericho was very close to the river, and that happened. So they were all shut up in the city. Nobody came in, nobody went out. They were huddling in fear in Jericho. And the Eternal said to Joshua, See, I have given into your hand Jericho, and the king thereof, and the mighty men of valor. Everybody's in your hands. Warriors, king, everybody. And you shall compass the city, all you men of war, and go round about the city once, 
This you shall do six days. They weren't to attack. They were just to march around the city. What does that do? <laughs> well, we got, we got uh, Centennial Park over here, let's say. So we go and we march around the city and come home. Uh, what did that do? I don't know. Got some looks. What's that about? Well, not going to happen, I don't think, and I don't mean it that way. They're not our enemies in the first place, and God hasn't necessarily given us that land. But just as an example, uh, most armies don't just go out and march around something and, and sit down. They, they go to fight. That's what they go for. Well, God had made some promises about how he would fight their battles for them, how he would take care of things. And uh, they were to march about it. And seven priests shall bear before the ark seven trumpets of ram's horns. And the seventh day you shall compass the city seven times, and the priests shall blow with the trumpets. Ram's horns and trumpets. And it shall come to pass that when they make a long blast with a ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout. And the wall of the city shall fall down flat, and the people shall ascend up every man straight before him. Just a shout. That's not a bomb or anything. It's just a shout. And he said the wall would fall down. That's very unusual. And Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Eternal. And he said to the people, Pass on, encompass the city, and let him that is armed pass on before the Ark of the Lord. So they had some arms, but they were not at this point to use them. And it came to pass, when Joshua had spoken to the people, that the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram horns passed on before the Lord and blew with the trumpets. I guess they, they called the ram horn a trumpet. They didn't have the silver trumpet, maybe. Uh, it says both, and then it talks about the one. So maybe it was just the ram horn they blew. Anyway, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord followed them, and the armed men went before the priests that blew with the trumpets, and the rear guard came after the ark, the priest going on and blowing with the trumpets. And Joshua had commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout, nor make any noise with your voice, neither shall any word proceed out of your mouth until the day that I bid you shout. Then shall you shout. Very explicit. They weren't to talk and make conversation as they walked around. This was a very formal thing, only the blowing of the trumpets. No talking, no playing, nothing, just marching. That in itself would have been frightening in a way. Trumpets, ram's horns, make chills go up and down your spine at times. And having those seven blowing and walking around the city and going home, and they're, they're sitting there thinking, what is going on here? They marched all the way around us, and then they went to camp. They come back the next day, they march around us, and go back to camp. This was not any war tactic they'd ever seen. Uh, what to make of it? 
It must have been very concerning and great consternation. And the fear continued to build. What's going on? Because when you're unsure and confused, fear comes even easier. Because it is not knowing often that is our greatest fear. We fear things that aren't really all that fearful. As Winston Churchill said, uh, how did he put it? I can hear his voice in my mind. Uh, the only fear was fear itself. Something like of that nature. Because your thoughts, your emotions begin to build and Nothing to fear except fear itself, so that you become weak and cowardly is what it amounts to. So Winston was trying to cause the people of England not to fear and to realize that their emotion was what was causing most of their problem. And I'm sure that was going on here in the city of Jericho. And then the seventh day came, I'm sure that was the Sabbath, and they marched around the city and didn't go to camp. And then they marched around again and again. And they're sitting there watching this. Something's changed. What's going on? Do you think they were thinking by any means that the walls were going to suddenly flatten? That probably never entered their minds because walls don't do that. But they knew something was up. And that had them scared. So after the seventh time, then you shout. Verse 11, So the ark of the eternal compassed the city, going about it once, and they came into the camp and lodged in the camp. And Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark, and the seven priests, and the second day they compassed the city once, verse 14, uh, verse 15, And it came to pass on the seventh day that they rose early about the dawning of the day and compassed the city uh, after the same manner, seven times, only on that day they compassed it seven times. And it came to pass that the seventh time, when the priests there with the trumpets, or blew with the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout! For the Eternal has given you the city. They hadn't really earned it just by doing a little walk, but God has given it to you. And the city shall be accursed, even it and all that are therein, to the eternal. Only Rahab the harlot shall live, and she and all that are in her house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. And you in any wise keep yourselves from the accursed thing, lest you make yourselves accursed when you take of the accursed thing, and make the camp of Israel accursed and trouble it. But all the silver and gold and vessels of brass and iron are concentrated, are consecrated under the eternal. They shall come into the treasury of the eternal. That's an important point. They weren't to take anything. This is the first city that they've come against after crossing the river. And God had done all of that for them. Now, he was going to cause the walls to fall flat, and the city had great riches of wealth, silver, gold, and all these things. 
And God said, don't you touch any of it except to bring it to the treasury of the eternal. What is the first commandment? Worship God above everything. Everything comes from Him. And all He asked them to do, that first city, was bring everything that was there of value to the treasury of the eternal. Now, does that seem to be such a onerous thing? That God does this for you, and then He asks you to give that which wasn't yours in the first place, a spoil of war, and give it back to Him. Thank you, maybe. Gratitude, yeah, for what you've done for us. You see, God claims of anything we earn, 10% to be given to Him. Because He gave us everything, the breath of life and everything else that we have, and everything on this earth is His. He made it all. It's His. He's allowing us to use it. But He wants us to keep in mind where it came from. So, of what we earn from work of hands, with dirt that he made, seeds that he made, uh, iron that comes from the hills that he made, gold and silver that comes from the hills. He asks us to give him, out of all that we earn, 10% back. What does this do? Is it just something because he's greedy? How could that be? It's all his. He made it. It's us that it's for. It is there as a commandment to bring him the first 10% so that we might remember where everything we have came from. It is there to keep us in an attitude of thankfulness and gratitude to the great God who made the universe and who has offered us eternal life. That never goes away. And we'll see in the New Testament that man's nature hasn't changed either, and we're going to see that today yet, and that we bring to God a portion of that which we have, or as we earn it, doesn't matter how we earn it, whether it's by the work of our hands or the, the field or the tree or whatever, he has rules about even the taking of fruit for the first few years and how we go about it, how we use it. And then it becomes ours forevermore, or without giving a tenth every year on fruit. But it's for us. God does not have a problem. We do. We have a problem keeping in mind that everything came from God and being thankful to Him for everything we have. So He requires we give back to Him of our physical things, and He blesses us physically, and He blesses us spiritually. That's the way He set it up for our benefit. Now, when you write that check or whatever, you don't always think this is for my benefit. You think this depleted my account, maybe. But we need to think beyond that. We need to think of why. Because God is God. And because he made everything there is, and it's all his. The gold is mine, the silver is mine. He says right there in the book of Haggai, 
when he's drawing his remnant together to build his temple, there's going to be a great deal of silver and gold. A great deal. And he's going to use the silver and gold that he has buried, according to Isaiah 44 and 45, to show the whole world that he is God. He's going to have more gold than the Russians and the Chinese and India and the U.S. and everybody combined. He has a treasure trove buried that's bigger than all of it. And it isn't far from here. Those who settled here, the Mormons knew it. Brigham Young knew it. He said within 50 miles of where he was standing, I've heard in Hurricane or maybe it was uh, Santa Clara, I'm not sure. But within 50 miles of here is the greatest treasure buried on earth. Hitler knew it and sent people over looking for it in World War II. Uh, James Wesley Powell, who was supposedly... Uh, just surveying for the U.S. government, had gold-detecting equipment, mercury in his stuff. He was here looking for it. Uh, a lot of people have come out here looking for it. Even uh, Indiana Jones, what was his name? Uh, Zimbel Jones, a uh, <coughs> archaeologist who spent most of his life, is, came from Texas, but he spent most of his life in the Middle East looking for the things of God. And he heard some of these stories and read some things. And he came to Utah also looking for the treasures of God. But they haven't been found yet except by two or three men uh, who passed on some of the information. But they didn't give it to the Mormon church because they'd become um, more or less enemies of the, of the Mormon church. But it's here. And God said he's going to open the mountain and the world is going to see all of this. And I think they're going to see the, the temple treasures and a lot of other things that I believe are buried there. And it's going to show the whole world that God is God. That's what his whole thing is in the end time, is to let the whole world know who God is. And he's going to use his church, and he's going to use those treasures, and many other things, to show who he is. So anyway, he has caused us to need to give back to him for our good. And that's what the tithing laws are all about, is for our benefit. Because it shows we put him first. And it shows then that he can bless us as a result of putting him first. We'll see that a little more as we go on here. But anyway, they were to give it all to the treasury. Everything, all of it, not a tenth of the spoils of war in this particular case. Now, there were times, as we'll see, where they were allowed to keep it. But the first time, it was for him. Remember the Red Sea? How they came out and they lost their thankfulness and their gratitude immediately and began to murmur and complain and give God fits because they didn't have everything just the way they wanted it. So he, at this particular case, when they come into the promised land, he says, okay, I don't want to hear any griping and grumbling. 
I want you, from this city that I'm giving you, just by marching, I'm giving it to you, and I want you to turn it all back to me. After his experience with them at the Red Sea, he did not want to repeat performance. This time he wanted thankfulness and gratitude. And they would show it by everything they found and bringing it to his treasure. Okay? God appreciates it when we appreciate him. So the people shouted when the priests blew with the trumpets, verse 20. And it came to pass when the people heard the sound of the trumpet and the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city. It wasn't just pieces of the wall that cracked and fell. The whole thing went down and they were surrounding it and it says they went straight up from where they were standing and they had an entrance wherever they went up from. Everywhere. It just fell flat. I've seen some ruins of cities here and there. And uh, they don't do that. They don't go that way. So they took the city and they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, ox, sheep, ass with the edge of the sword. Weren't even able to keep the animals. They killed all of them. Every living thing. But Joshua had said to the two men that had spied out the country, Go into the harlot's house and bring out the woman and all that she has as you swore to her. And the young men that were spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brethren and all that she had and all of her kindred and left them without the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire only the silver, the gold, the vessels of iron, and so on, they put in the treasury of the Lord's house. And Joshua saved Rahab, the harlot alive, and her father's house, and all that she had. And she dwells in Israel even to this day, because she hid the messengers which Joshua sent uh, to spy out Jericho. Here was a woman who acknowledged Israel. She acknowledged God. And her profession mattered not to him, he was looking for an attitude and what should be. And she helped Israel instead of being an enemy. Now, being friends of God and friends of Israel is pretty important, right? Saved her. The only ones out of there were her family. Now, her house was on the wall, remember? And she had put down the red thread for them to crawl down to get away. Uh... And the wall completely fell flat. So her house went with it. Her apartment in the wall. I assume that she had enough sense to get away from the wall. She wasn't at home that day. <clears throat> Maybe in the middle of the city, who knows. But I, it doesn't give all the details here. But obviously they all survived and were able to be brought out. You show respect to God, what does he do? But now we have a problem. <coughs> and Joshua adjured them at that time. He reminded them, verse 26, saying, Cursed be the man before the eternal that rises... Oh, this is a little different. 
the one that uh, rises up and builds the city of Jericho, he shall lay the foundation thereof in his firstborn, and in his youngest son shall he set up the gates of it. Anybody that tries to build back this city is going to lose his uh, firstborn and his youngest son in the attempt. They won't survive and they won't get it built, in other words. So the Eternal was with Joshua, and his fame was noised throughout all the country. Now, God had said he would be with them and never forsake them. And the Red Sea impressed the people of the land, the Jordan impressed them, and having the wall all fall down of a city, that scared them all. You know, what are my cities next? We built a wall here to protect us from all enemies. And here this God of Israel just flattened one. The walls did them no good. They didn't even have to lay siege. The walls just fall apart for people. That must have scared people absolutely to the very core in other cities that heard this story. But there's a problem. Chapter 7. But the children of Israel committed a trespass in the accursed thing. For Achan, the son of Carmi, and so on, took of the accursed thing, and the anger of the Eternal was kindled against the children of Israel. Now, here's a good lesson in our personal responsibility. You can say, well, it's just me. It's just my sin. I'll, maybe I'll repent or whatever. But that doesn't affect everybody. And that's one of the common sayings we've had in America. Well, it doesn't affect anybody else. It doesn't hurt anybody if I do this or if I do that. It's just me. Uh, doesn't hurt anybody. You sure about that? Everything that we do as human beings affects other human beings in some way or another. And compositely, all of us sin and come short of the glory of God, and that has a wider and wider effect till it comes to the point where God says, I've had it with them, down they go. Days of Noah, and here at the end as well. Same kind of thing. So here was one man who had touched what he had been told to leave alone or to turn in. He could have picked it up, but he had to turn it in. And he didn't do that. Anyway, uh, Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, another city, which is beside Bethaven on the east side of Bethel, which is, Bethel was near Jerusalem, and I think I know just about the location of it here in Utah. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Let not all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and smite Ai. This is a big town. Uh, we don't have to all go. Uh, just send up a small army and it'll be, it'll be no problem. And make not all the people to labor there with it, for there but few. So that's what he sent. Verse 5, And the men of Ai smote of them about thirty-six men, for they chased them from before the gate, even to Shebarim, and smote them in the going down. Wherefore the hearts of the people of Israel melted and became as water. Here we were at Jericho. 
the walls fell down. We were able to go in and take the city and kill everybody there, and we didn't lose a man. Didn't lose a man. Here they go up 3,000 against a very small city, and the people come running out of the city and chase the 3,000 off and kill the ones that are not running as fast. 36 of them. Now, that doesn't sound like a whole lot of casualties in a war, but compared to none, it's quite a few. And they had wives and children, and that wasn't good. And it scared Israel. So what did they say then? <laughs> Joshua rent his clothes, verse 6, and fell to the earth upon his face before the ark of the eternal until sundown. He and the elders of Israel and put dust upon their heads. And Joshua said to God, Alas, O Lord God, wherefore have you at all brought this people over to Jordan to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? Would to God we had been content and dwelt on the other side of Jordan. Now there's some of the thinking that you got from the Red Sea. Why didn't we just stay in Egypt? Let's go back. It's worse out here than it was there. So the first sign of trouble, they begin to question God. Why did you do this? It's your fault. How many times have men blamed their troubles on God? I wonder. Throughout history. Oh Lord, what shall I say when Israel turns their backs before their enemies? We, they were supposed to run in front of us, and we ran in front of them. How did this happen? Well, I can understand him going through in his mind trying to figure out, how did this occur? And that's his prayer, really. O oh Lord, what shall I say? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land shall hear of it, and shall environ us around, and cut off our name from the earth, and what will you do to your great name? He says, you've made yourself the God of Israel. You've made a com commitment with us, a covenant with us. And now all the nations are going to come in and destroy us. And what happened to your promise of protecting us? <coughs> your promise of being our father. And the Lord said to Joshua... Get up. <laughs> I think this is really neat. Here he is, wondering what's going on. What are you going to do? In a sense, kind of blaming God. And God probably used a bit of sarcasm and disgust in his voice when he says, Get up, Joshua. Quit feeling sorry for yourself. Quit having a pity party. You think I'm dead all of a sudden? You have your first sign of trouble and there is no God. Where's God? No God around. Did God ever promise us that we'd never have a problem of any kind? I can't find it in here. In fact, I find a lot of places where He promised we would. Get up. Wherefore do you lie you thus on your face? Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them, 
For they have even taken of the accursed thing, and have also stolen, and dissembled also, and they have, have uh, put it even among their own stuff. Not to the treasury, but in their own stuff. So God says, why don't you consider men first, and what men do that is ungodly? Why do you immediately question me? Who sins, me or men? <laughs> you know, but when we look around when we have trouble and we want someone to blame, and God's always handy, so blame Him. Instead of looking to me and saying, what have I done? What is wrong with me? What is wrong with my people that this is happening? Instead, it's easy to question God. So he says, Israel has sinned. It's your problem, not mine. Get up and fix it. Quit laying on the ground, whining, and wanting your way, and blaming me. It's your problem. Fix it. Therefore the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies because they were accursed. Neither will I be with you anymore, except you destroy the accursed from among you. Now they made an agreement, and he said, I will always be with you. But they had paid half of the agreement, which was, we will serve you, and we will do what you say. They were the ones who broke the covenant, not him. And once, it's, once an agreement is broken, then neither side has responsibility to keep it. We don't do what God tells us to do. He has no responsibility to give us eternal life, does he? It was based upon us doing certain things. And if we don't do it his way, then we broke the covenant, not him. And then he rejects us for disobedience, for being covenant breakers. He has never broken a covenant he has made. Not once. It was always people who broke it, or Satan who broke it, but not him. And then he is no longer obligated. You hire on with somebody to work, and you don't work, and they fire you. Are they obligated to pay you a pension for the rest of your life because you didn't work? I don't think so. People go to work, and they play on their telephone all day and don't work. But because they were there, they think they deserve to be paid, even though they didn't do anything to help the employer. They just played with their phone all day. I've actually heard it said like that. I'm here. You hired me to be here. What's this work business? We've got a whole generation kind of like that now. So he said, you've got to get rid of that which is wrong. Now he's still willing to keep his part of it if they will fix the problem. God doesn't back out on the things he does. If somebody fails and they repent and change things, then he's willing to pick up his part again. But if you are stubborn and adamant and you continue in your selfish, sinful way, 
then he just puts it on, hits the pause button. And he may even turn and punish to get you to humble yourself and begin to obey again. He loves you. See, there's the key. By nature, we love ourselves more than we love God. And we have to struggle to love God more than we love ourselves. And we love ourselves more than we love other people. And we have to struggle to love them as much as we love ourselves. Because it's human nature to love me, myself, and I and feel warm and fuzzy about it. We want everything to go our way. And we will put ourselves first. Almost all the time. No. That's not what we're here to do. So he says, up, get off your face. Verse 13, sanctify the people and say, sanctify yourselves against tomorrow, for thus says the eternal God of Israel, there is an accursed thing in the middle of you, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the accursed thing from among you. Quit whining and feeling sorry for yourself and get up and fix it. Or you're going to remain under a curse. Is that unreasonable? No. Not at all. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought according to your tribes. And it shall be that the tribe which the eternal takes shall come according to the families thereof. And the family which the eternal shall take shall come by households. So, twelve tribes. I don't know whether they were using the Urim and Thummim on the uh, priest garment or not, but probably because it would light up if it was the correct tribe for the issue at hand. And that would let the priest know that God is dealing with a problem with Ephraim or Gad or Manasseh or whoever. So I'm sure that's the way this was made known. I don't know that absolutely, but uh, that's what God had showed them to do in the past. So then you examine that tribe by households, and the household which the eternal shall take uh, shall come man by man. And it shall be that he that is taken with the accursed thing shall be burnt with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the eternal, and because he has worked folly in Israel. So Joshua rose up early in the morning and brought Israel by their tribes, and the tribe of Judah was taken. Uh, if they use the Urim and Thummim, uh, that section of the priest's garment lit up, Judah. And he brought the family of Judah, and he took the family of different ones, uh, man by man, and Zebdi was taken, and he brought his household man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, uh, was taken. And Joshua said to uh, Achan, My son, give, I pray thee, glory to the eternal God of Israel, and make confession to him, and tell me now what you have done. Hide it not from me. So he says, Confess before God, and also tell me what it is you've done. Because it's become obvious by God's selection process here, you're the man. Now, what he had done, the one man, affected all Israel. And we need to keep that in mind in our lives, that 
whatever we do, there is some effect on others and on God's view of his people. We do not live on an island. We are all responsible to God, and we're responsible to each other for our conduct. And just the conduct of one man here was causing people to get killed. It was causing God to curse them. We all are to be righteous. Okay, and Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the eternal God of Israel, and thus and thus have I done. And when I saw among the spoils a goodly Babylonian garment, and two hundred shekels of silver, and a wedge of gold of fifty shekels weight, that I coveted them, and took them, and behold, they are hid in the earth in the midst of my tent, and the silver under it. So he admitted he had taken things that were supposed to go to the treasury. Now, this was important to Israel, and it was important to God, and obviously important to Achan, as we shall see. So Joshua sent messengers, they ran into the tent, and behold, it was hid in his tent, and the silver under it. They took him out of the tent, brought them to Joshua, and laid them before Israel, or before the Eternal. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver, and the garment, and the wedge of gold, and his sons, and his daughters, and his oxen, and his asses, and his sheep, and his tent, and all that he had, and they brought him unto the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? What you have done has affected us all. The Lord shall trouble you this day. And Israel stoned him with stones, and burned them with a fire, and after they had stoned them with stones, they raised over him a great heap of stones to this day. So the Eternal turned from the fierceness of his anger, wherefore the name of that place was called the Valley of Achor to this day. Valley of Trouble. It was taken care of so that they all would not suffer. So you and I have a responsibility not only to God, but to each other to do the things that are right, lest it troubles us all. And the Lord said to Joshua, Fear not, neither be you dismayed. Take all the people of war with you, and rise and go up, up to Ai. See, I've given into your hand the king of Ai and his people and his city and his land. So he says, all right, you sent men up there, you got some killed. But there was sin in the camp, and now you've taken care of that, now I want you to go up there again. This time, everything will go your way, because you're going my way. Simple equation. You shall do to Ai and her king as you did to Jericho and her king. Only the spoil thereof and the cattle thereof shall you take for a prey to yourselves, lay you an ambush bush for the city behind it. So God quickly changed his approach and attitude when they changed theirs. Now the first time he had said, bring it all to me. Show gratitude and thankfulness 
that I delivered Jericho to you. You've never seen a wall fall down before. You've never seen anything happen like this that was so simple. I took care of it for you. And you disrespected me. Now you fixed the problem. I'm removing the curse. Now I want you to go up there and take care of it, and it'll all be done for you. This time, though, he said, don't bring it to the treasury. You can have it. Everything you find that is there <coughs> of any value, keep it. That's what he intended all along. But he wanted his first, and after that they could have everything they wanted. Isn't that fair? I back the river up for you. I bring you in. I make the city wall fall. And I said, just bring it all to me for this, this time. And you just couldn't do it. One of you didn't. The rest did. But not one. He says, I want everybody to obey and serve me. Now, you fix the problem. Achan and of everything that pertains to him is gone. This time, take it all for yourselves. I'm God, the first is mine. Tithing principle. After that, it's yours. He was teaching them. So he said, You shall take for a prey to yourselves all these things. So Joshua rose from the people of war to go up against Ai, and he chose out 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them away by night. Now, this time... They were to have a party go around behind the city and be ready uh, to take it. And he was going to have Israel do the same thing that they had done the first time they went to Ai. They'd gone up, here come these guys with swords and spears running out of Ai after them, and they just, ah, God can't save us, we can't save ourselves, away we go. So they took off running. And Joshua said they'll do the same thing this time. Why not? It worked before. I want you to take so many men and get on behind and hide. And then you want to rest out front. And they'll come out to chase them and do the same thing you did before. Take off running. And all the men of the city will come after you. Hey, this is easy. We get to do this again. Here we go. So then those of you who hid behind the city come out and take the city. I won't read all of this because it's quickly summarized, but that's the way they did it. And then they did this. Uh, verse 13, And when they had set the people, even all the host that was on the north side of the city, and their liars in wait on the west of the city, Joshua went that night into the midst of the valley, and when it was early, they rose up uh, to do this ambush. Verse 15, Joshua and all Israel made as if they were beaten before them and fled. And all the people in Ai were called together uh, to pursue after them. And they pursued Joshua and drawn away from the city. There was not a man left in Ai or Bethel that went not after Israel. 
This is a turkey shoot. Let's go. Here they're ours. Let's get them. And they left the city open and pursued after Israel. Forgot all about wives, children, cattle. Uh, here's Israel running from us. Here's our chance. The Eternal said to Joshua, Stretch out the spear that is in your hand toward Ai, and I will give it into your hand. So he stretched it out, and the ambush arose quickly out of their place, and they ran as soon as he had stretched out his hand, and entered the city, and took it, and hasted, and set the city on fire. Now, when some man in Ai looked back and saw smoke, and he hollered, the city's burning, they all turned around and looked, Israel got away, but their city was burned. God took care of this. They had no power to flee this way or that, and the people that fled to the wilderness turned back upon the pursuers. So there was a certain point at which they're going to come after you, the city will be set on fire behind them, and you'll start coming back at them from the front. And there they are, trapped. Can't go home and get behind a nice comfy wall. And when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had taken the city and that the smoke of the city ascended, they turned and slew the men of Ai, and the other issued out of the city against them, so they were in the midst of Israel. So the ones who had taken the city now and had it on fire came out, and they had Israel on both sides. What's you going to do? You want the sword to come in from behind or from in the front? That's your only choice. Uh, and they smote them, so they said, Let none of them remain or escape. And the king of Ai they took alive and brought him to Joshua. And when they had made an end of slaying all the inhabitants of Ai in the field and the wilderness where they chased them, and they were all fallen on the edge of the sword till they were consumed. That all the Israelites returned to Ai and smote it with the edge of the sword. Uh, so both men and women were 12,000, all the men of Ai. So they didn't just kill the soldiers, they killed everybody. Men, women, and children. But Joshua drew not his hand back, wherewith he stretched out the spear until he had utterly destroyed the inhabitants of Ai. That spear represented in type the power of God. And as long as he held that out there, they won. Everybody died. Only the cattle and the spoil of the city of Israel took for a prey to themselves, according to God having said so. And Joshua burned Ai and made it a heap forever, even a desolation to this day. And the king, he hanged on a tree and leave him tied. And they cut him down and raised up a great heap of stones that remains. And he built an altar to God uh, in Mount Ebal. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded the children of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of whole stones over which no man uh, has lifted up any iron, and they offered thereon burnt offerings to the eternal and sacrificed peace offerings. That was a gesture of thankfulness and of gratitude that God had delivered them this time. And they stood before the ark uh, and gave thanks to God. And they read all the commandments of Moses. <laughs> you know, somebody broke a law of Moses and this happened. Now let's read it again. 
let's remember it this time and let's not break the law of Moses and maybe things will continue to go good for us. And then there come other allies of different people to fight Israel. And God kept causing them to win because he had promised them that land and he would give it to them as he had promised Abraham. So when they made uh, alliances among themselves, it didn't work. And then you had some that dressed themselves up here in this next chapter to look like they traveled a long way. They put on old clothes and old shoes and they came in and says they were from nearby. But they said they'd come a long, long way and they wanted to make peace. So Israel made peace with them. And then they decided that they would destroy Israel. They weren't going to keep it. But the situation was revealed and God put them to flight, and then he made great hailstones come down on them and finish them off. Except these who had made the deal that were surviving, I don't remember all the detail here, uh, agreed to be servants of Israel, hewers of wood and carriers of water. They would be servants, essentially as slaves, uh, because they had come up against God's people. Now, what does that make you want to be? makes me want to be one of God's people. God takes care of His people. If they sin, <laughs> He takes care of that too. But He doesn't forget them. And He remembers what He had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He remembers all these things, and He is going to carry them out. And I want to be one of those who's with Him when he starts bringing all of these blessings that he's promised to bring. I want to go back here for a moment to uh, Acts 4 and 5. Now here is where God had started the church after Christ had been killed and resurrected. On the day of Pentecost, uh, they were all gathered together to keep Pentecost there in Acts 2. And he had sent tongues of fire and he allowed them to speak in foreign languages that they had not known. And great miracles occurred. People were healed left and right. Even Peter's shadow passing over some caused them to be healed. So God was doing wondrous work. It wasn't anything Peter did. It wasn't anything the apostles did. It was something God was doing. Just like we've been reading back here. So there was a drought. And people were having difficulty. So in Acts 4, we came, in spite of all these miracles that were going on, there was difficulty with people having enough food to eat and, and everything to take care of to live. So God was giving great power in verse 33 uh, to the apostles as witness of the resurrection of the Lord. And great grace was upon them. <clears throat> neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold, laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made to every man according as he had need. 
and Jothus, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, <coughs> the son of Consolation, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now here's the case of what you might call communism, or communism, where there was a great lack, so everybody brought everything that he had, and it was all piled up and then distributed so that everyone had food, they had the ability to live and to act. Now, God did, does not call for communism throughout the Bible, uh, where we share all things in common all the time, and in fact, uh, he shows that we were to possess land, we were to possess our own cattle, and so on. So God has never been a communist. But for one case of dire necessity, they just turned it all in. Sold everything they had, turned it in, and then it could be distributed so everybody could eat. Now, under certain conditions, uh, for a temporary time, that was a good thing. And people started doing it. Gave it all to the apostles. That sounds pretty extreme, doesn't it? How hard would it for spoiled Americans be to turn, sell their land, sell houses, sell everything they got, and come and lay it in a pile so that everybody might have? That would be very difficult. There are those who are trying to do it to America today, right now, in Washington, D.C., and around the world. And they're having fairly good success, really. But that's a tough thing, to take everything you have and give it for the benefit of all. Love your neighbor as yourself. And under certain extreme circumstances, that could be necessary. And here, apparently, it was. So it wasn't a change from Republican or Democrat to communism. It was something done on a one-time situation for the benefit of everybody. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. And they knew what everybody was doing. They kept back part of the price his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain point and laid it at the apostles' feet. They acted like they had done what everybody was doing. Thank you. Here's, here's ours. <clears throat> but Peter knew better. He said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the price of the land? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own power? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but unto God. Because God had inspired that they sell and give all that they had. One man bought. Just like back in <clears throat> Joshua. One man said, oh, that gold and silver, man, look at that garment. Woo-wee, I'll look good in that. So he took it. 
and all Israel was accursed. Now here they were all doing something, but greed got hold of Ananias and his wife, and they decided, well, we'll, we'll be good, we'll, we'll give part of it. But they've been asked to give all. What has Christ asked us to do as Christians? To give all to Him. Everything that we are and have and ever will be, we are to give to Him as our high priest, as our older brother, as our husband. We're to give all to Him. What do we tend to hold back? Oh, I kind of like this. This is fun. What am I not giving to God? It's all His, isn't it? Didn't He make it all? Didn't He claim it's all His? The silver, the gold, everything. He'll give it to us. He'll let us use it. But sometimes He tells us, I want part of it. Give it back to me. Is that too big to ask? He asked them to give all. He asked us to give all. Heart, mind, body, and soul to Him. Anything we have that He needs, we should give. Or be willing to give. He wants that completeness of heart from us. Wholeheartedly. We should serve Him with zeal and energy. As the creator of all the universe, creator of us, we owe him everything. Everything. And he lets us use it for a while. But even the breath of life which we have, that he gave us, we have to be willing to give up as martyrs to him. The apostles had to. Jesus had to. He's not asking anything of us that he hasn't asked of his own son. To give all to Him. And if we're willing to give everything we are, He's willing to give us eternal life forever and ever with wonderful circumstances. And here's the end. <clears throat> he asks us to leave the city and go dwell in the wilderness in the field. Give up whatever it is that you have. Your, your boats, your cars, your houses, your second houses, your whatever. Go dwell in the wilderness, and there I will deliver you. That's what he's promised. So he's asking people, the remnant at the end, to give up whatever they have and go. Some have done it now, and others will. Some of you have done it. You're pioneers. You've sold your houses and wherever you were. And you've come to serve God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. That's what you're here for. And he will reward you wonderfully for it when he begins to give his blessings. We may not have a whole lot right now, but what we got's cheap. <laughs> we may have old mobile homes, but doesn't cost as much to live. God has provided, hasn't he? And yet some were like Ananias and Sapphira and says, I think we ought to own this land. I want to own my lot. God gave it to us. God let us have it cheap. And yet, 
Why do you need it? What? Selfishness and greed. Why do I need title to anything as long as God gives me opportunity to use it? Do I need a title for air? Do I need a permit to breathe? Well, He gave us these things. He gave us everything. And what He asks of us is really very small. To give back His gratitude and tithing, for instance. But we were purchased by Christ in His blood. He bought us with a price. Thirty-three pieces of silver for all of us. And He wants us to serve and obey Him above everything. And He will give us the whole universe with the earth as the headquarters. That's not a bad trade, is it? He lets us keep most of what we have and use it. He's so fair. But humans are greedy and selfish. And Satan knows about our greed and our selfishness. So he says, Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit to keep back part of the price of the land. Verse 5, And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and died. And great fear came all them that heard these things. Achan got stoned. In this case, in the New Testament, Ananias just fell over and corked off. And the young men arose and wound him up and carried him out and buried him. And about three hours later, his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. Peter answered to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yep, that's right, for so much. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Eternal? Behold, the feet of them which have buried your husband are at the door, and shall carry you out. And she fell down straightway at his feet, yielded up the ghost, and the young men came in and found her dead, and buried her with her husband. And great fear came upon all the church, and upon as many as heard these things. And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders worked among the people. So God caused great blessing once the problem was taken care of. But it's the same in the New Testament as in the Old Testament. God expects us to do what He says, and He asks them to give all. But they weren't willing to give all. So, they gave all. <laughs> the breath of life. They died and got buried. God works in patterns. And He is doing the same thing here at the end. We had sinned throughout the church. We were not zealous for God. <coughs> we were putting ourselves first in many ways. But he's the God of all the universe. We have to give Him first choice. First everything. Put Him first in every aspect of our lives because we owe Him everything. And when we sinned, we gave up everything because we have to die for sin. And Christ came and paid the price for all our sins so that we all might have the opportunity to live forever. 
Can you be in a deal like that? What an incredible offer he's made us. You just serve me, live down there according to the way that I ask you to, and I'll give you everything. <coughs> Nothing unfair about the way God offers us the trade. Give me all, and I'll give you everything. So we both have to perform. But who is it that usually doesn't perform? <laughs> it's us. Whether it be Ananias, or whether it be Achan, or whether it be Adam and Eve, <coughs> or whoever throughout history. Now God has offered you and me, here in the end time, after having become Laodicean, self-righteous, thinking we were okay, He's offered us, if we'll repent, a chance to miss the great tribulation that is about to fall upon the earth and the Holocaust that is coming and be in a place of safety during that time, be delivered from it, and give an eternal life at the end of it. <coughs> Such a deal. All we have to do is worship Him with heart, mind, body, and soul, First, love each other as much as we love ourselves. This is getting tough, isn't it? <laughs> but that's all he asks of us, really. Just do those two things, and you will inherit eternity. This is a time, right now, of the beginning of restoration and deliverance for God's church. And he's called a few, a very, very few, and God starts small, fear not little flock, to be the forerunners, to come out first, to set the example, and be here so that when his remnant is stirred, they'll know where to go. He's brought us here for a specific purpose, brethren. And we are to be a light to the church and ultimately then a light to the world. Is that too much to ask? What a great joy when we see 10% of those who have been called start coming together to be blessed of God and to have milk and honey without money to have Edenic conditions restored to the earth, time of restitution. That's what the last day of unleavened bread represents, is deliverance and restoration. And it's all tied to Pentecost, 50 days later. Jubilee is about deliverance and restoration. Pentecost is about deliverance, coming of the Holy Spirit, restitution of the Spirit of God in man himself. A wonderful time. It represents the jubilee. Liberty from the way of Satan and man to serve God without fear. And it's tied together with a 50-day count. Pentecost represents liberty, jubilee, we have it coming up again here in another three weeks. Is this the year that he begins to truly restore like he did in Acts 2? 
I don't know. I'm hopeful every year. <laughs> I'm hopeful every year. But I know it's coming. It'll come in the year that He has chosen. But we are to be faithful and true no matter what to Him because when we were baptized, we promised to give Him everything and He would give us everything in return. We became His servants. We became His children. He's our Father. You do what Father says. The church is the mother. If the mother follows the Father, we do what the church says. Because that's the way God set it up. We obey our father and our mother. Now, if your father is the devil and the world is your mother, you got a problem. We have to worship the true father and the true and follow the true mother as she leads us to the father. And we are to do it with all our hearts. Because that's what God wants. He doesn't like halfway attitudes. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. Work hard at it. Be zealous in it. Be thankful for what he does do. Be full of gratitude and don't think, well, I think I'll have some of this or I'll have some of that, like Achan and Ananias and Sapphira as good examples. Because that didn't work out for them and it didn't work out for the rest of Israel. So here we are, on the edge of history, and restoration and deliverance are at the door. Are we going to be ready to walk in, or are we ready to bitch and complain? We need to be working our attitudes toward thankfulness and gratitude for what God does for us and already has done for us. We have some here <clears throat> who took the other route. They decided they wanted to own the land. File lawsuits. They're not going to get the land. They're going to get cast out because that's what Jeremiah 11 and Zechariah 2 say. Or into Zechariah 1, I guess. They're not going to get what they wanted. Achan didn't get what he wanted. Ananias and Sapphira didn't get what they wanted. People here are not going to get what they wanted either. Because God has already decided what's going to happen to those who got greedy and decided they wanted it in their possession. Instead of commonly owning it, commonly using it, like they were doing back then. When you were back in Houston or wherever you came from, you had to make high rent payments or high house payments. You had to pay high taxes. You had to take care of all these things yourself. Here, you can come and move into an old mobile home that you don't pay a whole lot for and get to live there almost without money. 150 bucks a month for taxes and land lease. It's almost nothing. The only place the cheaper lives under a freeway bridge around the streets of the city, and then you got to have a tent and some other stuff to go with it. Here you're living as cheap as well as we're living. We have all the water we want, abundant water, 
All we want, no meter on it, no chlorine in it, and all the water you need to raise a garden, raise animals. We don't pay much, hardly anything, and we have the use of the land and everything that God so far has given us. So instead of greed and saying, well, I want title to it, God may not keep his promise, Daryl may sell it out from under us, or whatever they say. I want it, and I'll have it, and I'll file lawsuits until I get it. What does God think of that? Well, he's already passed sentence. He's going to cast them out to go into the tribulation, and every one of them is going to die, man, woman, and child, Jeremiah 11. Very clear. They're not listening to Achan. They're not listening to Ananias and Sapphira. They're not listening to God. But God is going to take care of the problem. I don't want to be part of the problem, do you? I want to be part of the solution if I can be. And I want to seek God with all my heart, mind, body, soul. And I want to love you as I love myself and take care of you as well as I take care of myself. That's what we're all here for, is to help each other turn to God. And if we can accomplish that, then everything is going to go well, and we will be delivered and restored and blessed forevermore. The last day of unleavened bread pictures that. And we never understood it. Now we do. And there's no room for griping and complaining. There's only room for thankfulness and gratitude for the great deliverer and the great restorer, God the Father and His Son. That's where we look because that's where it's coming from. He gave us an opportunity to be partly restored here, to live very comfortably for very little money, and it's going to be even less money once the money's gone. Come and eat and drink milk and honey without money. Worship that God.